I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship with your host, Claudia Pauls. Thank you for joining us today for another episode of I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. Today we'll be talking with Elizabeth Alderson. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi. And she's been with us before. She is a licensed master social worker and therapist at DASIS. Thank you for coming in today. Um, We have talked in the past about what sexual assault is, and and we're going to focus today on the trauma effects of sexual assault, but we need to back up a bit and, and redefine what sexual assault is. Correct. So uh, we define sexual assault as any unwanted sexual behavior. Um, So that could include um, what some would call molestation or unwanted sexual touching, um, fondling of of body parts or body areas. That can also include unwanted um, oral, vaginal, or anal anal sex or penetration. Um, And so... It's kind of a broad term, you know, including all of those things. So it's not limited to, you know, someone walked by and grabbed my butt, but it also includes any penetration or touching that was unwanted in a sexual manner. Um, And unwanted means that someone didn't give consent for it. And what is consent or Um, what isn't consent, both of those? Yeah. So here in the state of Michigan, um, we, we define consent as you have to be over the age of 16, Um, to give consent and that consent is a verbal yes saying yes I want this to happen Um, yes I consent anything along that lines but consent cannot be given by anyone under the age of 16 Um, so you can say yes but legally you didn't consent to whatever happened after that Um, that you can't legally give consent if you're under the influence of alcohol drugs or even mood altering drugs Mm -hmm. like medications that alter your mood Mm -hmm. Um, so if something impairs your ability to drive and your doctor says you can't take this and drive well you also can't take that and then give um, legal consent well and that's interesting you said verbal yes yes which doesn't mean not saying stop or no or not saying anything you have to actually consent correct and you have to you have to verbally say yes it's not a head nod because you know when we so when people go to court and they're charging you know that someone has sexually assaulted them um it's very easy for someone to say well they gave a head nod yeah Mm -hmm. but in what direction i mean Mm -hmm. you can rotate your head in 180 degrees that doesn't mean that you that the way i nod yes is the same way that somebody else nods yes and you know in a court of law you have to say yes you can't say yeah you can't say yep you can't say any of those variations to the judge and you can't head nod either Mm -hmm. you know that's a social cue that we've given over the years but the judge will ask you in court 
does your head nod mean yes? And they'll say yes. And he'll be like, then they'll re-ask the question and you'll say yes again. And so it's right. a very like a formal way of saying yes and no. And so that's what I like about the state of Michigan is that you have to have a verbal yes. That's amazing. And it's I didn't not just that. the lack of a no. Right. Because some people would be like, well, you didn't say no. Right. Well, <laughs> you're right. I didn't. But I also didn't say yes. And so there's really some ambiguity. Ambiguity, uh, yeah, you know, no ambiguity with that, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. And so it's it's a lot, you know, it's a lot more empowering for survivors to say, well, I didn't say yes, mm -hmm. and that's all that needed to happen. Mm -hmm. So everything outside of that verbal yes isn't consent, right? Does an intent, I'm sure, plays a part of that as well? Um, yes, yeah. And so part of consent, thank you, is um, was there an option to say no? So, okay, so I verbally say, yes, I want this to happen, but is that because you've told me if I don't say yes, you're going to kill me, my family, someone I love, my mm -hmm. kids, my pets, or physically harm me or mm -hmm. someone else? Have you threatened? And so you've coerced a right. yes out of me, but there was pressure behind that. And so even that yes is not consent because there was force and coercion behind it. So we're talking about the effects of trauma. Mm -hmm. what, what is trauma? How would you define trauma? I would define trauma as an experienced or perceived experience that is deeply affecting a person. So it is distressing. It makes us feel not good um, and to our very core. And so we experience that emotionally, physically, and spiritually, and that it affects us um, for some time. Mm -hmm. And so some people experience acute trauma in which it lasts for like under six months um, and then those effects kind of wear off and because of processing or talking or whatever has happened and then or, or with the physical maybe with the healing I mean yes. when scars begin to disappear you can start to feel somewhat better physically right. anyway yep and so that trauma can include an event and it can include an action that's happening you know it could be um, watching something on tv and then that distresses us it makes us feel bad um it could be watching a scary movie and being scared for a long time after that you know that was a traumatic event it could be a car accident it could be um being sexually assaulted like we're talking about it a, a trauma is anything that then is extremely distressing to to who we are and to what we believe so as awful as all of of these situations are that people survive survive is our our theme what happens with all of these how, how do people get through these effects of having lived through a sexual assault right and there are a lot of different um physical and emotional and spiritual responses to sexual assault and i don't want any of the examples i give to limit people to say well i didn't feel that way so then i wasn't sexually assaulted because i mean there are so many different ways you can physically emotionally and spiritually respond and so some people um, after a sexual assault uh, have physical bruises or mm -hmm. scarring that people can see you know they're, they're outside the body so maybe you were held down and so you have bruising on your arms or your legs or you know external bruising scars something like that well others don't have any of that and they have internal injuries because of the force. And so that's a completely different physical response. Um, some people will have to have, um, you know, surgeries and medical care because of it. And so having those physical injuries, but also not having those physical injuries um, 
neither one of them is mandated to say that you, you know, have experienced sexual assault. You could walk away from that incident and not have any injuries, but it's still the sexual assault. You know, those physical things, um, they don't really bind you to it, but everyone experiences different things. And that can be hard for a lot of people um, because society expects you to have bruises and have scars and have, um, you know, things that they can see. You weren't abused because I don't, I didn't see oh, wow. the response to it. And so that's, that's, we don't really, you know, appreciate survivors and what they've gone through and we limit it to just their physical responses. Um, and for a lot of survivors that I've worked with who have or haven't had um, physical injuries to it, um, but especially for those who have, they say that their emotional scars, the emotional injuries that they experienced from the assaults far outlasted and outweighed anything physical that I they responded. So. Yeah. And so a lot of people... Um, no matter what they have experienced, they often feel, um, you know, I'm not worthy anymore. I am dirty. I'm unclean. Um, emotionally, you know, I, I asked for this. I feel insane because I know I didn't ask for it, but society may tell me I asked for it because of what I was wearing or what I was doing or where I was. And so emotionally, um, I think the most common experiences that survivors have, or at least the survivors I've worked with, are feelings of guilt and feelings of shame. And those two emotions go really hand in hand and play you know well together a lot of people will use guilt and shame interchangeably but they're not they're two very different things and so guilt is I am bad because of the decisions I made so my decisions were poor or bad you know like when people say they're guilty of a crime or so something somehow like they that. must have caused this yes and if, when we look at society that makes sense right so some people say, you know, well, if you weren't wearing X, Y, or Z, mm -hmm. you wouldn't have been assaulted. Well, in the world that I live in, I think that you should be able to walk down the street completely naked and not get sexually assaulted, right? Right. Like, now, yes, that'd be inappropriate if I had young children and you were walking down the street naked. Like, I'd be like, okay, like, new world, you know, but you would, you should still have the right to not be sexually assaulted. That's just human decency in my personal opinion well and and it's not sexual it's an attack so right. regardless of what you're wearing nobody needs to be attacked exactly yes and then so and then the other piece of that is so if it wasn't what i was wearing it's where i was you know well you shouldn't have gone to that party you shouldn't have gone to that friend's house um you shouldn't have been alone with him or alone with her you know what they're like you know, all those sayings that we see from society, um, you know, those kind of those location places. Mm. Well, don't, if you don't. didn't go to the bar mm -hmm. or if you didn't drink, if you didn't use drugs, if you weren't, you know, high or, you know, all of those assumptions that we make. But those really place the guilt on the survivor that if I didn't wear what I was wearing, if I didn't do what I was doing, if I didn't go where I was going, this wouldn't have happened. Therefore, it's my fault that you created the situation for it to happen. Exactly. And that's what we believe is completely the opposite, right? right? That all of the guilt should be on the person who perpetrated this act, that they were purposely trying to take power and control over you. And the way that they did that was through a sexual assault. And so it has nothing to do with who you are, and it has everything to do with who they are. But when we get all of those mixed messages, we then carry that guilt. 
And so we're telling ourselves that we're bad, that we're wrong, that we're not worthy of life. You know, and it, and it can get really, we would say extreme, like, okay, you were sexually assaulted. And so really you feel that you're unworthy of life? Yes, you do. There are so many survivors that struggle with that or that struggle with ownership of their body again. Mm-hmm. What do I wear so that I don't get sexually assaulted again? And they should have been able to stop it. Mm-hmm. Somehow they should have been able to stop mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then a lot of guilt is formed internally around, you know, I didn't run away. Mm-hmm. I didn't push them off of me. I didn't scream out for help. I didn't um, call 911, you know, all of those kind of things. And that's not something we can control. That's something you can um, be blamed for, <laughs> but it's not something you can control. And so anytime we as humans experience any kind of traumatic event, whether it's a sexual assault, whether it's a domestic violence relationship, whether it's a car accident, or whether it's 9-11, I mean, everyone, ha- you know, everyone who's alive has experienced um, 9-11 if you were born bef- before 2001. Mm-hmm. You know, I vividly remember where I was that day. Mm-hmm. That's a traumatic response to every single person who was alive at that point in time. And none of us chose how we responded after that, right? Some people cried. Some people isolated. Some people bought American flags and put them on their house, right? We all responded in different ways. But that initial reaction of hearing it on the news, of watching it on the news, however we then responded, was out of our control because we went from our prefrontal cortex of where all of our cognitive thinking happens as as adults. And Mm -hmm. so that's where humans know math and other animals and mammals don't, right? Well, that's because we have a prefrontal cortex that's active, and they don't. (laughs) It's as simple as that. Mine could be a little more active with the math part, but anyway. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, but that's where we learn different languages. Mm -hmm. That's where we learn math. That's where we learn Mm -hmm. science. I see I speak English and very little Spanish. (laughs) And math, yeah. Yeah, that's about it. And so, you know, that's that's how we're different. And so we leave that part of our brain when we're experiencing a traumatic event. And we go into our base level of our brain so the most um the most historic the most oldest part of our brain and that this part of the brain every little living animal and creature has and it's where your fight flight and freeze happens and so we used to call it fight or flight so you either ran or you fought back Mm -hmm. and that really didn't explain what a possum does right because he doesn't run right and he doesn't fight back a possum freezes you play dead we mm-hmm. teach our animals to play dead, mm-hmm. you know, and so mm-hmm. and so we've added, you know, freeze to the language of what our brain does. But that's without our control. It happens um, subconsciously and we don't get to choose what happens, because if we chose what happened, we'd breathe, we'd be in our prefrontal cortex and it takes time to make a choice. Mm-hmm. If we all sat in a room and we were like, what do we want for lunch today? We would think, what do we want? What do we want to do? What do we want to go to eat we'll do what type of food do we want what restaurant how long we're willing to drive all that kind of stuff would come into play and it would take seconds to minutes to make that decision and our brain's job is to stay alive at its core all it wants to do is is keep the body that it's been given alive and so it makes a millisecond decision to shut off your prefrontal cortex to turn on your fight flight or freeze response and to make a choice of those three things and it chooses at random for best we know of neurobiology of trauma and brain scans and all that kind of stuff is that it chooses one of those three at random 
And the more trauma we experience, the more it chooses fight, flight, or freeze. And sometimes there's a pattern that develops. If your brain chose freeze multiple times, it may continue to, but it also may choose any of any of those other responses, but we have no control over that. Mm -hmm. And so when you tell a survivor, you should have ran away, you should have called 911, you should have done all these things, they carry that they carry that weight of guilt. Right. It just I, adds to it. Yes. When what we should be considering is that you lost control the moment your brain recognized a traumatic event was happening. You lost complete control. Your prefrontal cortex shut down. So this instruction, or, or how, however you want to phrase it, that has to be the first steps in helping mm-hmm. victims realize that it's not their fault. Yeah, and a lot of times we do a lot of, um, you know, education um, during therapy, and that's something that I have gone over with every single survivor. Um, depending on their age, we do different, you know, we explain neurobiology and our response to trauma very differently depending on if it's a child or teenager or adult um, or even where their cognitive level of reasoning is because sometimes that changes as well. And so we we explain that because that really takes the weight of guilt off of you. Mm-hmm. When you can, when you realize that you weren't in control and that your body just responded the way it did, it takes all of that burden of guilt away. And it's, and it's wonderful to see a survivor experience that. And it's so wonderful to see a survivor turn around and tell other people that. And so I love it when my, when my survivors come in and they share stories and they say, you know, you told me about how my brain responds. And I went back and I told my mom and I told my dad and I told my friends or my siblings or whoever they told their friends. And they were like, do you know why? That's why it happened. And then like to have that recognition of like this guilt isn't mine to carry anymore. It's somebody else's guilt to carry. Um, it's well, just, and you described that so well, weight or burden. Mm-hmm. You can't climb out of that hole and begin to heal if all of those weights are keeping you down until mm-hmm. you understand mm-hmm. what's behind that. And that's a lot of that's the hard thing about guilt too, is because sometimes we'll go and we'll talk to somebody. So it could be a therapist, a counselor, it could be anyone, right? Anyone that we have a connection with, and we're talking about whatever we're struggling with and whatever guilt we may carry about an action that we did. And oftentimes we feel relieved talking about it. Mm-hmm. But then when we leave that person and that conversation we've had, we pick up that guilt and we take it back with us. We don't leave it where it should be left. And that takes time and practice to really stop picking up your guilt every morning when you wake up you know you you get dressed you know you go take a shower you pick up your guilt you put it in your purse and you carry it with you just like your phone and your car keys right right yeah well which is what therapy does and Mm -hmm. helps people be able to to leave that behind and start to recreate their lives the Mm -hmm. way they should be you mentioned earlier there's a a difference between guilt and shame and we've kind of focused a bit on guilt so Mm -hmm. how does shame play a part with this yeah so they're kind of like um your twin sisters they're not identical you know they're fraternal sisters mm-hmm. but they they go hand in hand a lot of times and so shame is so if guilt is my actions were bad shame is i am bad i am damaged i am a defect i am broken i am unworthy i'm unclean it's owning that as i am as a person and so you are what your actions were so if guilt is your actions, shame is who you are. It's a part of your personality now. Hmm. And that can be the real um, heaviness of the two is dealing with shame. 
being ashamed of who you are, not your actions, who you are. Which is very, very different. You know, you always, uh, well, I would tell my daughter if she had done something that I wasn't particularly happy with, it wasn't that I didn't love her. I didn't love what she had done. Mm -hmm. And making that, realizing the difference between your actions and who you are is huge. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, And when we're lucky enough to be taught the difference of our actions and who we are, that's helpful. But sometimes it's still, you know. I'm a survivor, I'm this, I'm that. And, and when we're not yet survivors, when we're, still, um, when, we're, when we're still feeling like we're victims of something, it's I'm a victim. You know, that's, that's a label of shame. That's part of that. Is that, I don't know, maybe that's not part of healing, but mm-hmm. sometimes just being able to be a victim for a while before mm-hmm. you climb out of that hole mm-hmm. would be helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, owning, owning, you know, what happened to you. I mean, I think the label and the feeling of being a victim is very, is very powerful for, for a purpose. But I don't think um, it's healthy long term, mm-hmm. right? Because, however, being a victim of something means that I didn't cause it. That is true. You know, and so that is part of letting go of that guilt of you caused these actions. Um, And then, you know, survivor is, yeah, yeah, is of releasing that guilt and that shame and saying, okay, this happened to me, but it doesn't define me in a negative way, right? I'm going to use this to the better. I tell clients all the time, you know, some of the hardest substances in the world, like metal, right? We can do a lot with metal. We can hurt people with metal. We can make cars and buildings. It's really strong, right? Well, Metal gets even stronger when it's put in fire. Mm -hmm. So if we think of our traumatic experiences as being put through fire, we're refined through fire, we're made stronger through fire. And if we look at that as that fire was just a time and a place and a point in our lives, and that we don't have to be on fire forever, but we can be made stronger. We don't have to be a victim forever. We don't. We can become a survivor. Yeah. And so, and there's a lot of different aspects of shame, you know, like we talked about, um, Already, And I think one of the most powerful aspects of shame, especially around sexual assault, is one that doesn't get a lot of attention. And that's the shame of being aroused during the sexual assault. I don't think we've talked about that at all. Yeah. And so sometimes um, sexual actions happen, right, during a sexual assault. And that is an arousal is our biological response to it, Mm -hmm. right? That's not being excited that it's happening. That's not being... um, you know, that's not consent. Arousal isn't consent. But arousal happens as a biological response because of what is happening in our body. And so arousal can be unwanted mm-hmm. for many survivors, right? No one wants to experience, um, you know, orgasming during a sexual assault. But it happens. And so a lot of people, a lot of survivors will carry shame because they were aroused during sexual assault. So they think they must have enjoyed it. Yes. And since I enjoyed it, you know, biologically, that means I wanted it. And Mm -hmm. that's not true. A lot of the male survivors I work with, the hardest thing for them to come to terms with is that they, you know, they got hard or they got off or they, you know, and that's what they think means that they wanted it or that they you know that that it was then their fault and there should be shame they were saying yes yeah and they were and that's and that's not true and so it can be really hard for um all survivors to deal with that i've experienced that a lot of my male survivors that's the hardest things for them Mm -hmm. to come to terms with Mm -hmm. um and it's also one of the things that i think society has a really hard term with because um 
when I hear people talk about male survivors, they'll say, well, he wanted it because he was hard or because he was aroused. And that's not true. That's a biological response. Anyone who knows a male teenager knows that they don't enjoy every single time waking up with what we joke about for hormonal boys is morning wood like it's become this joke well they didn't want that mm-hmm. they didn't ask where they didn't go to bed and say oh i hope i wake up this right. morning you know right. and my my mom comes and wakes me up and like no that's not and so if that's a biological response just because of their home hormonal state and their age then it can be a biological response to what's happening in their environment around them and, and like i said it's a really hard thing for any survivor to really cope with and deal with because it's like well my body wanted it therefore maybe my mind wanted it or i deserved it mm-hmm. and that's a really hard um just area of shame to deal with being able to to do it one step at a time i'm sure is is very helpful for survivors as well mm mm-hmm. And what I what I thought was so interesting was um, this morning coming in here, um, my morning routine is, you know, is like most millennials to get up and look on Facebook and to see what's going on in the world. Right. And I saw five different articles from five different like news sources talking about um, what's happening in the state of New Jersey right now. And that is a judge has been accused of um, misconduct in his courtroom back in 2016 um, because a domestic violence survivor was there and um, she was attempting to get a personal protection order um, because of a sexual assault that had happened and so the judge is quoted of asking do you know how to stop somebody from having intercourse with you how would you do that and so the survivor responded I'd probably physically harm them or tell them no or try to run away and then the judge continued pressing the victim, um, run away. Is there anything else that you would do? And the survivor's on the stand saying, I, I don't know. Well, right. I don't know what else I would right. do, right? So we're going back to that fight, flight, or freeze. And the judge is putting shame and guilt on that survivor and saying, like, well, wouldn't you block your body parts? Wouldn't you close your legs? Wouldn't you call the police? Wouldn't you do any of those things? And that's what we talked about earlier with shame and guilt. And that's what we talked about with society's impression of how survivors, how victims should respond to sexual assault. Well, you're having this conversation in the courtroom and you're using your prefrontal cortex. And that survivor was not in that mode when this was happening. Well, and those questions automatically would, the judge obviously thought that the victim should have been able to stop it. Right. And it's so sad. And so the the story's still coming out that... um, you know, that they have the recordings from the court proceedings and all that kind of stuff. And um, the New Jersey Supreme Court, um, which is who's investigating this right now, has asked that that judge be put on suspension for Mm -hmm. several months, unpaid leave, um, that they have to go through some trainings on how to appropriately respond and all that kind of stuff. But here's the thing, because of that person's position of power, they are going to be taught how to respond so they can go back into the courtroom. Okay, well, what happens to your friend and your family member when they say these same kind of shame and guilt Mm -hmm. stances to survivors? Mm -hmm. They don't have a class that teaches them because it because we think it should be human nature that you don't blame somebody for what happens to them. But we don't. And so this this powerful person gets to go through a class and get their job back and act like nothing's happened, even though they've probably horrifically hurt the survivor and maybe they didn't mean to but maybe they really did right because maybe they didn't believe her right 
you know and so that's what's really hard is so as survivors they they feel this guilt and shame internally and they experience it and then society just reinforces it even Mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. and so then they come into therapy or advocacy or any kind of supportive service they call a crisis line anywhere around the world and they're feeling all of this hopelessness and guilt and shame and unworthiness and then it's where do I go from here right right and so what we um what we try to do is really work with people on the guilt and shame is not a quick process that every day for days or months or even years or decades you've picked up the guilt and shame of what happened to you and you've carried it with you and so it's going to take time to stop picking it up but every day can you put it down for a little bit and then is there a day that you don't pick it up at all? Mm-hmm. And then there's that turn into weeks and months and years, but that there's no um, there's no quick fix. And I was talking with a client this week and said the same thing. You know, everyone says well, one day you'll wake up and it'll all be over and you won't remember it anymore. And that's so not true. I would not think that'd be true. Right. But it is over time. One day survivors will wake up and the assault that happened to them will not affect them to the same great deal that it once did, but that overnight took days and weeks and months and years. And practice. And practice. And a lot of connection with um, not necessarily therapists or counselors or advocates, but sometimes it's their best friend. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's their parents. Sometimes it's a stranger on the street. Sometimes it's a pastor or a preacher or, you know, religious counsel. Like it's not always a quick fix and it's not always a specific type of person that they, that you should talk to or have to talk Mm -hmm. to, but it's that connection with other people. Cause at the root of sexual assault is taking power and control for some, from somebody and we're created to be in connection with people. And so part of the part of working through that is having connection again with people because sexual assault teaches us that the world is unsafe and that people are unsafe and you'll continue to live feeling the world and people are unsafe until you find people to connect with. And, so well, sometimes and, it's, and you were starting to allude a little bit earlier that while the, the victim is going to create or recreate their own guilt and shame, those other people around them may reinforce that as well. And that effect of trauma mm-hmm. Not only do you have to, to, to cure yourself, but you have to cure those that you're surrounded by as well. Yes. And so a lot of times um, people come into therapy and they haven't been sexually assaulted, but their friends and family members have. And so that's what we call a secondary victim. Mm-hmm. So a primary victim is who that um, incident happened to. And the secondary victim is everyone who's been in been impacted by that person's trauma and so that can be your parents your spouses your kids your friends your co-workers your family all that kind of stuff and yeah those people you know we as society we have to change the way we look at people the way we look at others and so a lot of times um family members will come into therapy um Mm -hmm. because you know and so you know their their child started you know, therapy because they were sexually assaulted. And so then parents will come in for therapy as well to kind of learn how do I cope with, how do I deal with all of these effects that my kids are going through because I want to support them and I don't necessarily want to judge them or say the wrong thing, you know? And so that's really wonderful. But sometimes, you know, it's decades later and a parent or friend is like, I don't know 
I, I know I've said the wrong thing and I know I've done the wrong thing and I just want to get better or be better or know how to respond mm-hmm. um, to survivors. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that's it's amazing to see when people see that. And sometimes it's family and friends that come for therapy and it's not the survivor, you know? The survivor's like, I'm going to do my own thing. But somebody else is like, I know somebody and I heard this and it has impacted me to my core. And, you know, and it happens. So we want to make sure that anyone who is feeling like they need some help to cope mm-hmm. with the effects of sexual assault or domestic violence, that mm-hmm. they do feel empowered to call mm-hmm. DASIS to get on yes. the website, dasismi.org. Um and reach out for help, whether you're the victim or someone trying to help the victim. Yes, yeah, that our services are free and confidential to primary you know, victims and secondary victims. And so if you know a survivor, you are a secondary victim and our services are available for you. Our crisis line is always available for you, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can call and just have a voice to talk to. So I tell my clients all the time is, it's the middle of the night and you can't sleep and you're just feeling the weight of that guilt and shame, and you want to talk to somebody, you call that crisis line, and they're going to be there for you. If they're lucky, they'll get you. Right, yeah. This has (laughs) been very, very informative, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And this has been I Am Not In An Abusive Relationship. Thank you for listening to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. If these stories resonate with you and you need help, please visit our website, D-A-S-A-S-M-I dot org. That's dasismi dot org. Or call our hotline at 800-828-2023. We are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it, all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan.